Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Happy holiday, Shabbat Shalom. Welcome to Rosh Hashanah services. Rosh Hashanah, uh, also Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, celebrates the coming of King Messiah. As heralded by those shofar blasts we heard just a moment ago, hallelujah, uh, where we welcome the king into our midst. Uh, when the temple stood, the presence of God was represented by the Aron HaKodesh, by the Ark of the Covenant. So it seems appropriate today to look at this classic text of how King David welcomed the Ark into Jerusalem and, and its lessons for how we can welcome King Messiah's presence on this Rosh Hashanah. So turn with me to 1 Samuel, and you have it in the overhead, chapter 5, and then we're going to go jump to 2 Samuel, chapter 6. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Eshdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod arose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face. On the ground, before the ark, the ark of the Lord. Hallelujah. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Uh, but the following morning, when they arose, there was Dagon, falling on his face, on the ground, before the ark of the Lord. And this time, his hands and his, he- and his head had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only the stump of his body remained. And skipping over to 2 Samuel 6, David again brought together all the young men of Israel, 30,000. Uh, he and his men, they went to Baalah in Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord God Almighty, who's enthroned between the Kechavim, the cherubim, and the Ark. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it uh, from the house of Abinadav. Uh, and Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadav, were guiding the new cart uh, with the Ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nachon, uh, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, the Lord struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, this place is called Perez Uzzah, the, the breaking out of Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in Er David, in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of, of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And for three months, and the Lord blessed him there, Obed-Edom's house and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up to, to, went, uh, to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull uh, and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. All of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with the shouts and the sound of shofars of trumpets. Hallelujah. Well, this famous account, uh, it tells us about what we all need uh, in our lives uh, and what we celebrate on this Rosh Hashanah. 
That is the immediate presence of God in our midst. As the Lord God, as the King of Israel, is enthroned, is coronated on Rosh Hashanah, on the Feast of Trumpets, as heralded by the shofar blasts. Now, note this account is not just telling us about the importance of belief in God or, 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 or ethical virtue, but about the very presence of God, the immediate presence, the face of God, the experience of God, knowing God. Now, this famous passage revolves all around the Ark, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, what was this Ark? In Hebrew, the Aron uh, Kodesh. The Hebrew word Aron literally just means uh, a chest. It was a wooden box overlaid with gold. Just, uh, it was just over four feet long and two and a half feet uh, high and wide. On the top was a slab of pure gold uh, called the Kippuret, uh, the mercy seat. And there were two golden kachurim, uh, cherubim, facing one another, uh, on the kippurette, on the mercy seat. Now, on the overhead here, the Ark of the Covenant was the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle and, and, and the, later the temple. It was placed in the Kados HaKodeshim, in the Holy of Holies. And over the Ark appeared the Shekhinah, the glorious presence of God, the infinitely heavy and dazzling brilliance of God, the immediate, personal, raw, royal presence of God. Uh, the face, the transcendent God. And King David wanted that presence. David knew he can't make it without the Lord's presence with, with, with him. He wanted God more than anything else in the world. He longed for God uh, like a deer in a parched desert pants for water. He was a man after God's own heart. Notice the goal is not just belief in God. Or, or inspiration from God, not even just obedience to God's commands, but the joy of the presence of God, the experience of the face of God. That's what David was after. That's what the ark represented. And to learn how on this Rosh Hashanah, uh, how you can get this also, I want us to look at this passage today uh, under three headings, which we'll put on the overhead. Uh, number one, uh, the promise of the ark. Number two, the problem of the ark. Number three, the provision of the ark. So first, what is the promise of the ark? Why does David want the ark? You know, the ark had been lost because the Philist uh, Philistines had captured it about 20 years before then. But after the Philistines had sent it back, it had remained in this remote place at, at uh, Baalah, also called Kiryat Yaram. Uh, and now David had become king, and now he's established his capital in Jerusalem. And he brought the tabernacle to Jerusalem, so now he wanted to bring the ark back there as well. He wanted God to be central to his people. He wanted the Lord to be central to his society, to his culture, to his nation. But his interest in the ark, in the presence of God, went even beyond this. They, these, they were also personal. Because David is the one who wrote in Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. What David was after was not simply making God central to the life of his people because he also knew the pressures that had come to leaders. He realized if he did not have this spiritual reality in his own life, he was not going to make it. Uh, he, uh, if he didn't have the, the supernatural joy that comes from being in the presence of God, the Lord, 
he wasn't going to make it. Spiritual reality. The very presence of God was represented by the promise of the ark. Of course, God is everywhere. You can pray to him anywhere. But the ark represented the very face of God. The immediate presence of God. Uh, The glory of God. Uh, The weight and the holiness of his presence. See, the ark meant meant the promise of spiritual reality. Now, now what is spiritual reality? Uh, It's one thing to believe God loves you. It's one thing to believe God is a gracious, merciful God and that he approves of you in Messiah Yeshua. But only if God's approval is more spiritually real to your heart than anyone else's approval will you then be able to say, I don't care what people say about me. You won't care about criticism. You won't be, you won't be, be driven by, by the need for approval. Uh, you won't be cast down uh, if you feel you've been snubbed. If you say, I believe God loves me, but you also say, but yet you're cast down uh, whenever you're snubbed. Uh, You're always getting your feelings hurt. Uh, If you're devastated by criticism, then the love of God is not spiritually real to your heart. It's just an intellectual concept, uh, but it's not spiritually real. If you don't feel the weight of it, the kavod of it, if it doesn't press upon you uh, on the overhead, if God's approval uh, was more spiritually real to you than anyone else's, then you would live fearlessly. If God's power is more spiritually real to you than to your heart than any other kind of power, you'd live fearlessly and you wouldn't be hungry for power. David knew that if he had actually had the spiritual reality, then he would have a joy that wasn't subject to circumstances. Throughout his reign, David was constantly uh, had his very life and his kingdom threatened all the time. He was constantly under enormous stress and pressure. And therefore, he needed a joy. A joy that would transcend his circumstances. He needed a joy that was not mere sentimentality uh, that dissolved whenever, whenever trouble came. No. He needed a joy that got deeper and stronger the worse it got. Do you have that? Do you have that kind of supernatural joy? David knew that he could get, uh, he could get temporary joy out of having power. Uh, but what happens when the power goes away? You can get joy by having success. But what happens when when your success goes away? You can get joy from approval and love. But what happens when they go away on the overhead? But if God's glory, God's approval, God's power, God's wisdom is more spiritually real to your heart, then you have a joy that is not subject to circumstances at all. Then you have a joy that actually gets deeper as your other sources of joy dry up. You'd have a joy that gets deeper the worse it gets. Uh, like the stars could get brighter as the night gets darker. Now, do you want that? King David said, I'm not going to make it without that. He needed a joy that comes from spiritual reality. And that's why he needed the face of God, uh, the presence of God, the ark of God. So on the overhead, that, that's number one, the promise of the ark. But now we are also going to see number two, the problem of the ark. Because the ark is indeed a problem. Let's just review it. Uh, First of all, 20 years before this incident with Uzzah, how was this ark lost in the first place? So that David now has to go and get it. Well, 20 years before this, uh, Hophni and Phinehas were two corrupt sons of the high priest Eli. Uh, They were in charge of the tabernacle, but they were corrupt. Uh, They embezzled. uh, They stole the offerings from the people. 
They seduced and had sexual relations with the women who came to the tabernacle to serve the Lord. And when the Israelites went out to battle against the Philistines, they thought they could automatically win if they brought the ark of the Lord with them into battle. They thought this would guarantee their victory, despite the corruption and open sin in the priesthood. They said, hey, remember what happened when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down? We brought the ark out. Let's do it again. So Hophni and Phinehas, they carry the ark into the camp of Israel uh, with the ark, and, and everyone's shouting and cheering, and they went out and they charged against the Philistines, and they get slaughtered. Look at 1 Samuel 4, verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. And so the Philistines concluded, hey, uh, this God of the Hebrews, he's not so tough. We just captured him. But every time they put the ark into one of their temples, the idol of that temple, uh, the statue of the God in that temple, would fall on its face. And every time the Philistines put the ark in the middle of their town square, one of their towns, plagues broke out everywhere. Tumors broke out on the people. Finally, the Philistines said, let's get rid of this thing. (laughs) So they put it on an ox cart without any driver and just sent it out uh, towards Israel. And when it got to Israel at the town of Beth Shemesh, the men of Beth Shemesh said, hey, the ark. We always wanted to see what was inside this ark. (laughs) So they opened the top of the ark. And 70 of them died. Look at 1 Samuel 6, 19. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. So everyone said, well, what in the world are we going to do with this ark? So they left it there in some remote place for 20 years. Uh, no one dared to go get it. And, and, and now you see why. Meanwhile, David becomes king, and he wants to bring the ark to his new capital, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. So 2 Samuel 6, verse 1 says this, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000, and he said, we're going to go and bring back the ark. And as he brings it, brings it back, it's put on an ox cart. Now, ox cart don't have riders in them. You don't ride in an ox cart. You walk alongside of it. You guide it. So the ark of the covenant had been put in this ox cart, uh, but we're told here Uzzah, who was the guide walking alongside, uh, that the oxen stumbled. And the ark was about to fall. So Uzzah puts up his hand to steady the ark, to keep it from falling into the, into the mud. And he's instantly killed. Second Samuel 6, verse 7. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there besides the ark of the Lord. Imagine the scene. Thousands of people jamming the streets, uh, dancing, playing music, celebrating, singing, All of a sudden, Uzzah is struck down. You can imagine the shock, uh, the silence, maybe followed by screams and utter terror. And so they left the ark there at the house of uh, uh, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and everybody just went home. And David was both angry and scared. 2 Samuel 6, verse 8. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Now, why did this happen? We need to deal with this because a lot of secular people say it's due to accounts like this in in the Bible. uh, This is why I don't trust God. 
Uh, I can't even believe in a God like this. Uh, this is primitive and irrational, uh, incoherent. We need to get beyond the, these wrathful religions. So the question comes up, why did this happen? Why did Uzzah die? What does it mean? Why did it happen? First note that in the Torah, in, in, the, in uh, the book of Numbers, there's specific rules that God gives for the transportation of the ark. So on the overhead. Uh, these are the rules. Number one, it has to be covered. Number two, it has to be carried on specifically made wooden poles overlaid with gold. There were these rings on, on the uh, side of the ark, and the poles went through the rings, and four men would then carry it uh, on their shoulders. Number three, it had to be carried by specific people, by Levites from the Kohathite family. And number four, it could not be touched. So it had to be covered, carried by Kohathites, and not touched. And every one of these rules were broken. Uzzah and Ahio, they were not Kohathites. They weren't even Levites. Uh, uh, they, weren't car- they were not carrying it. They put it on a cart. Uh, it wasn't covered, and they touched it. They broke all the rules. And, of course, that's what many people say. Uzzah died because he didn't follow the rules. And that's why many people say, I don't like, I don't believe in, I don't trust the Bible. I can't believe in or accept a God like this. Uzzah put his hands up, you know, as a natural instinct to keep the ark from falling, and he's smitten by God for this because he didn't follow all the rules exactly? I want nothing to do with a God like that. And the opposite reaction is to say, yeah, that's the way God is. That is the way he is. God will not bless you if you don't do everything, absolutely everything, exactly, perfectly, according to the rules. And I want to propose to you today that both of these extreme opposite responses are mistaken. On the overhead, the cause of Uzzah's death was not that he broke the rules. The occasion of his death was that he broke the rules. The symptom was that he broke the rules, but not the cause. Remember, there's a whole set of rules uh, uh, and, and, uh, regarding the ark, and they begin to break the rules as soon as they put the ark on the cart. Why didn't they all drop dead then? And why was only Uzzah killed? What about all the others who put the ark on the cart with him? And what about David, who supervised the whole thing? If Uzzah was struck dead because he broke the rules, why wasn't he struck dead before? Not only that, how did he even get the ark on the cart? They obviously touched it before. In other words, Uzzah did not die because there was this kind of force field around the ark, you know, so that if you got too close to it, uh, you'd feel kind of a shock. And if you actually touched it, you'd just get zapped and die. No. <laughs> because if that were true, that would have happened long before now. So, so here's, here's what I think it is. What do these rules teach us? There's a lot of rules and regulations about the ark, but what do they teach us? The ark was treated quite differently, by the way, than all the uh, artifacts and relics of other religions. Have you ever seen artifacts or holy relics uh, of other religions, uh, like in, from the Catholic Church, for example? Have you seen them carried around? It's exactly the opposite. Everybody wants to touch them. Everybody wants to put their, take their handkerchief and touch it. Uh, everybody wants to kiss it. Everybody wants to rub it. Everybody wants to throw money at it. Everybody, everybody wants to pray to it. Because the power of the deity is mollified and appeased, and the deity is flattered if you reach out with your religiosity and with your devotion, and you show the deity your your obeisance 
uh, then, the deity will, then the deity, the God, will bless you. So the ark, interestingly, is to be treated in the exact opposite way that the holy artifacts and relics are treated in all the other religions. Why? Look at, all, look at the regulations, the other regulations. It wasn't just that the ark wasn't touchable. What, what, the, the, uh, what does the Bible say you had to do in order even to approach the ark? When the ark was in the tabernacle, the only way to get from the entrance of the tabernacle to the ark, because what was between you and the ark was an altar where you made sacrifices. And the only person who could actually see the ark, go into the presence of the ark, was the high priest. But only once a year, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, coming up in 10 days. Only he could come into the presence of the ark with the blood of the sacrifice, which then sprinkled on the mercy seat on top of the ark. Now, what are all these rules and regulations about the ark telling us? In other religions, you can reach out. Yes, you can reach out with your religion and your devotion and your morality, and you can get power from the deity. But the ark of the covenant is God's way to teach us that there's this huge chasm between man and God. And not only can you not bridge this chasm with your religion or your morality or your devotion, but no one can. In fact, not even the Lord himself can just snap his fingers and forget all about your sins and still be a just God. There must be a sacrifice. There must be atonement. Our sin has created a debt that must be paid. There must be blood. There must be sacrifice. There must be death. There is this gap that must be bridged. You can't bridge it. And not even God in his righteousness can just ignore it and still be righteous. There must be a sacrifice. There must be atonement. Now, yes, Uzzah did break the rules. But why did he break the rules? Because I'm going to suggest to you it's because Uzzah rejected the essence of biblical faith, which is the gospel. The gospel is you can't just go into God on your own and in your merit and your good works. There's a chasm that can only be bridged by some kind of incredibly gracious, sacrificial provision. And Uzzah was completely unaware. He didn't even believe in that kind of chasm. He had the understanding of all the other religions of the world. Of course, yeah, of course I can, I can reach out. Uh, I'm a good person. I believe in the Bible. Uh, I do all these things. He didn't believe there was this chasm that can only be bridged by radical grace. He didn't believe it. And one of the ways you can tell uh, is that his, what his instinct was is why did he put his hand out? Because he believed the soil of the ground would defile the ark more than his touch would defile it. As if the soil of the ground was dirty, uh, but he wasn't. But the soil is wonderful. It does exactly what God made it to do. <laughs> you plant things in it, the things grow. It's, 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 soil is amazing. The earth is like a living organism. So the soil is, is this amazing, wonderful thing. It does exactly what God intended it to do. But you and I, are we, we're living, are we living in the way that God intended us to live? Are you living in accordance with who God made you to be? Are you loving your neighbor as yourself? Are you showing mercy and justice to others? Are you walking in purity and righteousness? Are you demonstrating humility and forgiveness? Do you display integrity and honesty in all your, in all your doings? And if you're, if you're honest on this, Rosh Hashanah, your answer is no. 
on the overhead. When Uzzah put out his hand, it showed he did not understand the gospel. He did, not, he did not understand the chasm between him and God. He did not understand that there was this enormous gap between him and the Lord that could only be bridged by some kind of radical grace and sacrifice and atonement. He had no idea. And that kind of attitude towards God is lethal. It was literally lethal here. So again, on the overhead, why did Uzzah die? Number one, he died because the habit of his heart, not just be, that because of the habit of his heart, not just because he broke a rule. The rules were a symptom, an occasion. The rules revealed the habits of his heart. Number two, he would not have died if five years from now he would have changed because the Lord knows the end from the beginning. He died because this was a habit of his heart that was never going to change. Because the Lord is outside of time and space, he knows. And number three, the reason why only one person died, and not everybody, and the reason why Usa only died at the end of the incident, uh, and not when they first started to break all the rules, is because God is desperately trying to wake up David the king, and wake up the whole nation, and wake up you today, and wake up me to tell us this approach to me that doesn't recognize this tremendous need for grace, this approach is lethal. Uzzah's approach to God is lethal because Uzzah thought he could manage God. Uzzah thought he could take God in hand uh, because Uzzah did not see himself as a sinner. He didn't see himself as separated from the Lord by this humanly unbridgeable gap. He thought of himself as a good person. He thought of himself as a moral person. And if you believe that your religiosity and your right beliefs uh, uh, and your morality and your right behavior means that you have God in hand, that God owes you now, that you can manage God, that he's automatically on your side, that is absolutely lethal. Anyone who does not understand the gospel of radical grace, that there's this enormous chasm that can only be bridged because of some kind of radical grace, You cannot bridge it with your own goodness. Anyone who doesn't understand this, uh, that believes by your own good deeds, you're putting God in your debt. You're you're managing God. You're taking God in hand, the way Uzzah did. And it's absolutely lethal. How is it lethal? First, if you take this Uzzah-type approach to God, and and if you live up to your morals and your religious standards, and if your life goes well, it makes you a cold and proud person because you think, well, I've earned it, uh, this good life. Yes, you think you've earned it. And so you'll be cold and proud, especially about, about towards those who are different from you, especially about towards those people you consider to be failures. If you're cold and proud, it's because you think you've earned this good life, uh, that God gives it to you because you deserve it. You see, you've got God in hand. Uh, you're managing God. So one possibility, you would take this, this type of self-sufficient approach, is that you become cold and proud. Or second, what if you live up to your moral and, and religious standards, but you don't get a good life? Uh, what if everything goes wrong? Uh, you'll still feel you've earned a good life. You'll still feel that God owes you. You'll still feel that you should have God in hand, but you'll be bitter and resentful and confused all your life. If this is you... If you're bitter today or resentful and confused, it's because you feel God has not given you the life you think you deserve. If you say, well, I'm mad at God. Uh, I'm mad at the universe. 
you're just like Uzzah. You think that because you're a pretty good person that God owes you. You have him in hand or you think you should have him in hand. You've got him under your management or at least you think you should have him under your management. On the overhead, do you see how lethal this attitude is? The user approach will either make you cold and proud if you think you're living up to your standards and, and you let your life's going well, or confused and bitter if, your life, if you're living up to your standards uh, but your life isn't going well, or if you don't live up to your moral standards, if you fail to live up to your moral standards, then you spend the rest of your life crippled by guilt and shame. And it's not only other religions that have this fatal flaw. Lots of people in Christian churches and Messianic Jewish synagogues have the same mindset. Lots of people in churches and synagogues are cold and proud or bitter and confused or filled with guilt and shame. Why? If any of these are you, it's because you have this mistaken belief that you can manage God by being a good person, by being devoted, uh, by reading your Bible, uh, by praying, by being Torah observant, uh, by going to shul. You think you can bridge the gap. If this is you, you're just like Uzzah, and it's lethal. And therefore, on this Rosh Hashanah, this Feast of Trumpets, God is sounding the shofar, and he's telling you to wake up. So in the overhead, number one, that's the promise of the ark, and number two, that's the problem of the ark. Let's not, now, let's not look at number three, the provision of the ark. How can we get the presence of God in our lives? How can you connect to the Lord? And the last part of this passage gives you the answer. God, through the ark, is teaching David how to get the presence of God in his life. And through that, he's teaching you. And he's teaching you. And he's teaching me. There are two steps, uh, and then a result. So three things. The first step is David finally sees the chasm. Look at 2 Samuel 6, verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day. It said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? This is always the first step. This is the first step out of being just a nice, religious, moral person and actually experiencing God. The first step is you've got to say, how am I ever going to bridge this gap? On the overhead, David finally understands the chasm. He didn't before. He finally says, how will the ark of the Lord ever come to me? God is so holy. I am so flawed. Before, he was overconfident of his ability to connect to God. Now he's realistic about the impossibility in his own might. And in this sense, the ark is like the gospel. The gospel, uh, according to the psalm, says this, uh, uh, says this in Romans 3.10. There's no one righteous, no, not one, according to the psalms. Whether you're a Bible-believing religious person or on the other extreme, you're an absolutely licentious, immoral pagan, you both equally need the grace of God. Because no one is righteous. No, not one. And the ark, in a sense, is a Torah picture of the gospel. Because the ark smites pagans, the Philistines. But then the ark also smites the good people, right? Uzzah, the religious people, the Bible-believing people, the pure people. And David says, I don't get it. And the answer is this. In fact, Nietzsche actually tells us exactly what the Bible tells us here. You know, Nietzsche's book, The Genealogy of Morals, he says, you've got people out there who are telling the truth, who aren't committing adultery, uh, they're not killing, they're not stealing. And then you've got other people over here who are not obeying any of the Ten Commandments, 
And the question is this, why are there moral people being moral? And he says, generally uh, and usually, they're doing it for immoral reasons. He says, why are the good people good? They're trying to get power. Power over God. So God owes them. Power over other people. So they can say, see, I'm one of the good ones. You're not. God's on my side. And Nietzsche is right. Because the Bible says the same thing. You can't make this ultimate distinction between the good people and the bad people because because the bad people are trying to be their own lord and their own masters by breaking the rules. But the good people are trying to be their own lord and their own master by keeping them. The good people say, since I've done this and this and this, and I refrain from doing that and that and that, God has to take me to heaven. You're your own savior. God owes you. You're your own Lord. You're getting control over God uh, by your good deeds and your Torah observance and your mitzvot. You're trying to manage God and manage other people. There's no difference in that sense between you and the explicitly immoral person. That's what Paul is saying in Romans 3. That's what the psalm is saying that he's quoting from. That's what the ark is saying. There's no difference. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's there's this radical chasm between you and God that you cannot bridge on your own. So on the overhead, this is the first step. You must see this chasm, and David sees it. But the second step is you've got to see the provision. Look at the overhead again. The, The ark doesn't just speak of the chasm with all of its smiting. It also speaks of the provision because of the mercy seat. In Hebrew, the kippurat from the word kippur, meaning to cover, to atone, as as in Yom Kippur. When David left the ark after Uzzah died, he left it at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. His name implies he was a foreigner. Uh, He was a Gentile. Maybe that's why David left it there. It was too dangerous, he thought, for for any Israelite. Let the Gentiles take the risk. (laughs) On the overhead, what does the text say? God doesn't want you only to know the bad news of the gospel, that you're more wicked you ever dared to believe. He also wants you to know the good news of the gospel, that through God's gracious provision, you can be more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Look at what the text says, 2 Samuel 6, verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. God was trying to say to David, why do you think I made the ark? Yes, to tell you about the chasm, but also to tell you about the provision. And what is the provision? Blood, death, suffering, sacrifice. Now, why would that be? If God wants to forgive us, why doesn't he just just forgive us? The ark tells us that forgiveness, bridging this gap between you and God, forgiveness takes suffering. Now, why does forgiveness always take suffering and death and blood? And if you're asking this, it's probably because you've never really been wronged. Uh, in a bad way. But if you've, really, if you've ever really, really been wronged, there's this indelible sense when you know someone has really hurt you badly, you can't just shrug it off, can you? You can't just dismiss it because there's an injustice that's been done. There's a debt, there's a liability here that must be paid. There's a wrong that must be righted. You feel this in your heart. And once you feel that, so feel that there's only two things you can do. You can make them pay, revenge, on the overhead, the other option is forgiveness. But do you know what it's like to forgive someone 
who's really wronged you? You want to slice up their reputation to, but, but you, to other people, but you don't. You hold your tongue. You want to slice up their reputation in your own heart, but you don't. You could either do revenge uh, and make them suffer, or you can, do, you can do forgiveness, and you suffer. You suffer. If you've ever tried to really forgive a really bad wrong done, done to you, you know it is suffering. You know it's blood, sweat, and tears. You know it's nails and thorns and a spear on the overhead. You can either do revenge if you've been wronged and they suffer, or you can do forgiveness and you suffer. You can do revenge and the evil spreads. It spreads into your heart uh, and it makes you hard and it spreads and you grow cold and the hostility grows. Or you can do forgiveness and the evil is overcome. And you become more humble. And you become more wise. And peace and grace grow. When a wrong is done, no one who's really been wrong can just forgive. So you ask, why can't God just forgive? Well, boy, you can't just forgive, right? Because of, of this innate sense of justice built into every one of you. You know that there's an injustice. You know there's a debt. There's a liability. And, and it must be paid. You can make them suffer, or you can forgive, and you can suffer. But if you do that, then you win, because then the evil is overcome on the overhead. And if we can't just forgive because of this God-given innate sense of justice without, without, without us suffering, Cobra Homer, how much more will God have to suffer in order to forgive us and overcome the evil of this world? And on the cross... That's exactly what you see on the overhead. Anyone who's ever been forgiven, anyone who's ever forgiven anyone who's really hurt you, what you're doing internally and subjectively is what on the cross God did objectively and historically and cosmically. His suffering, he is suffering for the sins of the world. There's no way around it. There's a chasm that can't be bridged uh, by God just saying, well, let bygones be bygones. No, someone must suffer. And Yeshua, the Son of God, did it. That's why in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse 3, and it says this, thank you, on the overhead. Behind the veil was the Holy of Holies, which had the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. Only the Kohen Haggadol, only the high priest, could enter the, the inner room, and only once a year, uh, and that never without blood. When Mashiach, when Messiah came as our high priest, he did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves. But he entered the Holy of Holies once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Hallelujah. <laughs> for he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. And by that will, we are made holy by the sacrifice of Messiah's body. Amen. Now, this text in 2 Samuel 6 shows us that David finally understands the gospel. He understands the chasm. Uh, notice 2 Samuel 6, verse 13. When those who were carrying, carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Notice, they were, notice by the way, they were carrying the ark this time. It's no longer on a cart. But David also understands the provision because it also says he brought a blood sacrifice to the Lord. And when you understand the chasm 
and then the provision. Into your life comes joy. If you are a a religious person, I want to ask you, do you have a relationship with God? And you say, yes, of course, because I try really hard. There's no joy there. But if I ask this to a gospel-changed person, a Yeshua follower, they say, yes, I have a relationship with God. Why? Because Yeshua bridged the gap by, by coming an infinite distance on my behalf, by taking on the suffering and the blood and the penalty on his own body, on the tree, on the cross. God's love satisfied his own justice. And he did all that for me. Now that's joy. The way you can tell the difference between if you're a moral person or a gospel change person, a messianic believer, is the joy. And you see here that David dances before the Lord. Look at 2 Samuel 6.14. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. Before he, under, before he understood the gospel, when he first tried to take the ark into, into Jerusalem on his own, we see no reference to David dancing, do we? But now he's dancing with all his might to the Lord. Now he's going to take flack for this later on, but because the kings didn't do that supposedly. But he's, so he's down there with the maidens dancing before the ark. And he gets flack for this later on, but he doesn't care. Why? Because he is now filled with God's spirit. His life has changed. He doesn't care what other people think. The approval of God, the glory of God, it's becoming more spiritually real to him than anything else. And he's not standing on his own dignity. His identity is based on something else now. Uh, isn't this amazing? To the degree you are not just a moral, religious person thinking you can bridge this gap and take God in hand, but you are now a gospel-changed person who says, no, I, did, I cannot put God in my debt. I am in his debt because of what he did for me on the cross. That degree, you will have supernatural joy. To that degree, you'll have a real sense that I am loved. On the overhead, Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Some of us know what it is to be almost too happy to live. I've experienced the love of God so overpoweringly that on some occasions, I've almost had to ask him to stay this delight because I couldn't endure anymore. If the glory had not been veiled a bit... I might have died. Do you know anything like that? Have you ever experienced anything like that? You can recognize the chasm. Rejoice in the provision. And there'll be a dance about your life. Hallelujah. Moral people, they think they're managing God. They think there is this fundamental self-pity about them. There is this uh, complaining spirit about them. No matter how good the rest of your life is going, this this complaining, critical spirit, this self-pity becomes the fundamental thing about your life if you're just a moral person. But the gospel changes you. It gives you a joy and a dance about your life that becomes the most fundamental thing about you, regardless of your outward circumstances. In fact, it's this supernatural joy that gets deeper the more things get worse. If David danced before the Lord uh, because of what he knew, if you understand and embrace the gospel, you know so much more than what he knew, you will be living in the Lord's delight more and more. Submit to 
and rejoice in the King, Yeshua, King Messiah, this Rosh Hashanah. This is the coronation festival of the King. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's stand. Let's all stand and pray. I'd like the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, on this day, you enthrone Yeshua as King Messiah on this feast of Rosh Hashanah, uh, this feast of trumpets, as, as depicted in Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man comes to take up his eternal kingdom, to rule and reign forever in our midst. Lord Yeshua, we need your immediate presence in our lives. Yeshua, we want to see your face. We want to experience you, to know you. We need to respond today to your shofar blast, which exhorts us to wake up, to repent, to live for you, to submit to you, to prepare for your soon coming. King David wanted your presence, Lord, more than anything else in his life. He knew he couldn't make it without you. Yeshua, you are called the son of David, but you're also David's Lord. We need to be more like King David, a man after your own heart. Lord Yeshua, on this Rosh Hashanah, we long for you like the deer pants for water. Lord, the ark represents your presence. But now if we are your follower, Yeshua, and we have your very presence within us, not just in some wooden box, but in our very spirit, the spirit of Messiah dwells within us then. Then we become like the ark in this sense because you dwell within us by your Holy Spirit. And this is only possible by the provision of the ark, by the kippurette, by the mercy seat. When the high priest sprinkles the blood on Yom Kippur for atonement, Lord, that's a Torah picture of your crucifixion and resurrection. That was a shadow. That was a type. You, Yeshua, are our final, our ultimate, our only, our real atonement. It's your blood and the heavenly mercy seat, Lord, that cleanses us. And now, like King David, we can dance before you with all our might. So, Lord, fill us with the joy of your presence on this Rosh Hashanah, on this Feast of Trumpet, because we pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Hak Sameach. Shabbat Shalom.